Good morning. Today's reading from the Word of God comes from the Gospel of John, chapter 13, verses 21 through 38. Please follow along in your own Bibles, on the screen behind me, or listen as I read the scriptures. Once again, that's John, chapter 13, verses 21 through 38. Following the reading, I invite you to respond in worship with the singing of the doxology. At that time, children are invited to join Kids Crew through the door on your right. Hear the word of the Lord. After he had said this, Jesus was troubled in spirit and testified, Very truly I tell you, one of you is going to betray me. His disciples stared at one another at a loss to know which one of them he meant. One of them, the disciple whom Jesus loved, was reclining next to him. Simon Peter motioned to the disciple and said, ask him which one he means. Leaning back against Jesus, he asked him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, it is the one to whom I will give the piece of bread when I have dipped it in the dish. Then, dipping the piece of bread, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. As soon as Judas took the bread, Satan entered into him. So Jesus told him, what you're about to do, do quickly. But no one at the meal understood why Jesus said this to him. Since Judas had charge of the money, some thought Jesus was telling him to buy what was needed for the festival or to give something to the poor. As soon as Judas had taken the bread, he went out and it was night. When he was gone, Jesus said, now the son of man is glorified and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will glorify the Son himself and will glorify him at once. My children, I will be with you only a little longer. You will look for me, and just as I told the Jews, so I will tell you now. Where I am going, you cannot come. A new command I give you, love one another, as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Simon Peter asked him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus replied, where I am going, you cannot follow now, but you will follow later. Peter asked, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Then Jesus answered, will you really lay down your life for me? Very truly, I tell you, before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, Anchor Bay Church. My name is Bryn. I'm one of the pastors here. I'm so glad to be worshiping with you this morning. Well, we want to take a moment, like we do every Sunday, and just pause and be quiet before the Lord and invite the Holy Spirit to speak to us with whatever stories or thoughts or memories are running through our minds right now. Let's invite God to speak to us uniquely, and then I will open us with a word of prayer after a moment. God, I... I'm so grateful for the little voices and the little feet that we hear going down into kids' crew right now, and I pray that you would be with them as they are studying your word and connecting with one another in community. We pray that 
you would be speaking to them, that, that now you would be discipling them and teaching them about who you are uh, and who they are in light of that. And we pray the same thing for upstairs. We pray that as we are looking at your story, that we would hear you speaking to us, that we would hear your invitation, your invitation towards repentance, towards honesty, um, and towards growth, towards life and resurrection. So we pray that with whatever we brought in this morning, that you would be speaking to us in the midst of those things, uh, into those places of pain and into those places of joy and offering us new life. We love you. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, lots of you know that we started our church as what was called High Rock North Shore at the time. Now it's called Anchor Bay Church. We started a little over 10 years ago. And it has been a whirlwind. Uh, some of you have been here since the beginning. I wasn't the original lead pastor, but I was on the original planting team. And I remember really early on, before we even had our first service, we were getting together with our planting team and we were dreaming about what kind of a church we could become. And part of that dreaming was we, we decided to try all kinds of things to see what we were good at, what our gifts were, what our unique call was on the North Shore. Kind of like if you're a little kid and you try a whole bunch of like sports or music or drama, what is my thing that I'm really good at and I really enjoy doing? We wanted to do that as a church community as well. And one event that we tried for years that I absolutely loved doing was an event called Art Speak. Does anyone remember Art Speak? Was anyone at Art Speak? I know this is how some people got even introduced to our church community was this event called Art Speak. We're going to put some pictures up on the screen of what that event was like. So every year we would invite local artists. Some of the artists went to our church. Some of them were from local colleges and universities. Some of them were just uh, artists from the community from all over the North Shore, whether they were Christians or not, to contribute their artwork to an art gallery that we would put on. And we would host a big art show and a, a musical concert. We'd have poetry readings. We'd have a wine and cheese reception after the concert. And then we'd sell all the artwork throughout the night and all of the profits would be donated to the Amira House, which is a safe house for survivors of human trafficking here on the North Shore. It was an incredible event. It was an incredible idea, and I loved doing it every year. We were showcasing artists' artwork. We were bringing community together. We were raising awareness about the major issue in the world of human trafficking, which actually exists right here on the North Shore, even though we want to pretend like it's in other parts of the world. It's right here in our community. And after a few years, there started to be a little bit of buzz on the North Shore about this event, Art Speak, at least in Christian circles. By 2016, we had enough traction that we couldn't hold the event in smaller venues anymore, so we started to think bigger. We rented out the Hawthorne Hotel. We sold 400 tickets that year in 2016. People were coming out in droves to participate in or event, uh, attend the event. People in the church were serving in really cool ways. Artists were creating, musicians and poets were performing. Survivors of human trafficking had a platform to tell their stories. And then something happened. Artspeak was growing, and, and the team that was planning Artspeak started to disagree about the vision and the direction that we wanted Artspeak to grow in. Some of us wanted the event to get huge. We wanted to rent out big venues. We wanted to, to bring in big name musicians that people had heard of. We wanted to sell out shows and become kind of the premier art event on the North Shore. But others of us wanted Art Speak to stay a little bit smaller, to, to be grassroots, to grow organically, to showcase local artists who attended our church, no matter their skill level, just so that everyone felt like they could participate in the event. And everyone on the team had an opinion, and everyone on the team felt very passionately about what direction they wanted the, the event to go in. And I was a team leader. 
And I could see the merits of kind of both sides, both perspectives. And so these vision conversations started to get a little bit difficult for me to know how to navigate. I wanted everyone to be happy. And I didn't like conflict. I still don't. And most importantly, I didn't want anyone to be mad at me. So I thought I would just solve it for everybody. I'd make the decision for everyone. I was the team leader, so I could make the decision, right? So rather than leaning in, rather than having the hard exploratory conversations about what it looked like to, to share a vision, come up with a vision together, to collaborate, rather than working with everyone to get on the same page, rather than managing the conflict in a, in a healthy way or discipling our team toward a shared vision and mission for the event, I just shut the conversation down. I made the call. I decided on the direction and I made arrangements for that direction and then I informed everyone what direction we were gonna go. And you can imagine how well that went over. At the time, I thought that I was doing everyone a favor. I, I was making the hard call for everyone. I was making sure that no one had to get in a fight about it. But the rest of the team felt blindsided. And they felt completely disempowered by my leadership call. Artspeak was their baby. They had come up with this idea and they felt cut out of the decision making of it. And they felt like this ministry that they had poured their heart and their soul and their time into for years had just been steamrolled and completely taken away from them. They were so hurt. And I was so devastated. I had let people that I loved down. I had failed. Have you ever failed like that? Have you ever let people down? Did the thing that you swore that you would never do? Have you ever made the wrong call? Maybe you betrayed someone's trust. Normally in our sermons, I like to throw out a couple examples so that if you can't think of anything, maybe you could, you could hear one of the examples and imagine yourself in the story. But I don't think I need to do that here because I think in a second, you can think back to one of those moments in your own life. A moment when you let someone down or when you failed. Or maybe it wasn't a big grand moment or some huge moral failing. Maybe it was just a, a series of things. Maybe it was a, a slow drip of letdowns, one after another, that finally culminated in someone's lack of trust of you or in someone's deep hurt. How do we recover from that? How do we bounce back from these kinds of failures? Well, this morning we are continuing our sermon series through the Gospel of John that we've been calling King and Criminal. And for this entire year, we've been looking at the story as it's told in the Gospel of John. And we've been slowing way down in this Lenten season to take a look at those final moments leading up to the cross. And this morning we're going to continue our walk with Jesus toward the cross. And we're going to take a look at two familiar stories in the Bible of two people who failed, Judas and Peter. Judas and Peter. They're two stories of two disciples who both failed Jesus, but they are remembered in history very, very differently. So I want to take a look at both stories of failure, and we're, we're going to actually go, borrow from a couple of the other Gospels as well. And then we're going to look at the difference in their responses to their failures. Because we will all fail in this life, but how we respond to that failure could mean life or death. So we're going to start with Judas Iscariot. Judas has gone down in history as one of the most vile villains of all time. His name has become synonymous with betrayal. You don't talk with a couple who's expecting a child and suggest that they name their son Judas. Even to suggest that would be insulting. Do we have any Peters in the room? 
We name our kids after Peters. Any Judases? No, we don't do that. By the time the Gospels were written, the disciples despised him so much that in every list of the disciples that we get, Judas is listed last, followed by a note of contempt after his name. Judas Iscariot, who betrayed Jesus. Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. Judas said this because he was a thief. Over and over and over, we read about what the disciples thought about Jesus, the man who sent, or Judas, the man who sent Jesus to his death for 30 pieces of silver. He was a villain, a bottom dweller, a crooked con man who sold out his friend. But he was also a complicated person like we all are, and failure isn't the whole story, is it? It never is. Something had to get him from point A to betrayal. Some story had to happen in between before we find him in that fateful scene in the garden. And history has tried to to fill in the blanks. Thousands of years of debate and speculation have brought the church to one conclusion about why Judas did what he did. We don't know. Maybe he, he bought into what Jesus was saying after all, but sold him out for a little nest egg. It's possible that that Judas was part of a group of Jewish nationalists called the Zealots, and they were hell-bent on a revolution against Rome, and maybe Judas was just sick of waiting on Jesus to storm the castle like Judas thought that he should. Maybe Judas just liked money, and 30 pieces of silver seemed like a fair price to kiss and tell. Our English reading of the Gospel of John suggests that the devil made him do it. But as we read the whole story, Judas did have his own agency in this story. We see him moving in this direction of betraying Jesus all throughout the Gospels, all on his own. So the statement that Satan entered him in that moment that that we heard in the passage that Will read for us, it doesn't mean that that there was this good guy named Judas who was suddenly demon-possessed or he was doing the will of Satan. Judas had already allowed himself to be influenced by evil forces in the world. He'd been listening to them. And in this moment, what had been a temptation starts to become an action. So there's all of these these things that that we can look at for Judas's motivation. And maybe it was a combination of all of those things. But one thing is for sure. When Judas finally betrayed Jesus, none of the other disciples whirled around and said, I knew it. It would have shocked all of them. Because as far as we can tell, Judas didn't have beady eyes or a pointy beard. He hadn't been lurking in the shadows with his Grinch fingers drumming. Judas was Jesus's friend. And Judas had failed him. But Judas's story isn't the only story in the Gospels about one of Jesus's friends failing him right before the cross. We have Simon Peter's story too. And I love Peter. Peter was always trying so hard. Peter had had walked with Jesus in life and in ministry for three years. He'd been Jesus' faithful number two. He'd watched as Jesus had performed miracle after miracle. He saw Jesus walk on water and he even got out of the boat to try to walk with him. When Jesus asked his disciples, who do you say that I am? Peter was the first one to speak up and say, I know, you are the Christ. And when Jesus, Jesus predicted that all of his disciples would fall away, Peter declared that he never would. Even if all fall away on account of you, Jesus, I never will. I have what it takes. You can count on me. Oh, Peter. Big, bombastic, bull in a china shop, Peter. He vows to be the rock that Jesus wanted him to be. He's going to be strong and steady and dependable. Even if he has to die, nothing is going to come between him and his Lord. Don't worry, Jesus. Peter's got you. 
But immediately after Jesus predicts Judas's failure in the Last Supper, he predicts Peter's failure too. He says, Peter, you are going to deny me three times before the rooster crows tonight. Three times. That number was very specific. In Middle Eastern culture, if if someone broke their word to you three times, it would be appropriate for you to permanently break relationship with them. And this is still a custom in some parts of the Middle East today. Jesus is telling Peter, your sin tonight is going to be severe enough that I could be rightly done with you. But Peter won't have it. He pledges his allegiance. He'll he'll be the loyal one. He's going to be there for Jesus until the very end. And then later that night, Jesus goes off in the garden, Garden of Gethsemane to pray. And an angry mob finds him. And they're led there by Judas. And Peter tries to save Jesus at first. It was kind of this last push of bravado before Peter realized that they weren't winning this one. And he cuts off the ear of one of the guards. And Jesus rebukes him. He says, no, Peter, my time has come. So Peter watches as this mob drags away his friend. And Peter follows close behind, and he's just close enough that he can hear and see what's happening, but he's not close enough that he's risking his own handcuffs. And that's when the servant girl approaches him, and she says, you aren't one of this man's disciples too, are you? Now, what would be going through your mind if you were Peter and you were asked that kind of question? Well, I think for Peter, it was abject terror. If I say yes to this question, they're going to kill me too. And so Peter says no. And then he's questioned a second time, and he says no again. And then he's questioned a third time, and the third time he's questioned, he's questioned by a relative of the guy whose ear that he cut off. So this guy knows who Peter is, and Peter is emphatic. He's like, no, 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 you got the wrong guy. I don't know this man. I'm not one of his disciples. It was quite a leap from you are the Christ to I do not know this man. And he didn't even realize he was doing it until the rooster crowed, and he finally realized what a slippery slope it had been to sell out his Lord. It's a tragic moment for Peter, right? What a failure for for Peter. You got to feel for these guys, but it can be a little hard to relate to them, right? I mean, we have all done bad things, but it's not like I've ever stolen from the poor. It's not like I've ever insisted that my ideas were better than God's. It's not like we ever denied knowing God because we were afraid of looking bad. It's not like we ever said that we would do one thing and then turn around and did the opposite thing over and over and over again, right? But actually, I've done all of those things. It's pretty easy to demonize Peter and Judas in their moments of failure to to make them the, the villains of the story to get frustrated with their density or their hypocrisy or their spinelessness until we realize that we all have moments when we're looking them in the mirror. We we thank God for God's amazing grace, but then we refuse to forgive the people who have hurt us because they don't deserve it. Or, Or we thank God because God forgives everyone, but then we don't accept that God forgives me and we stay stuck in in guilt and shame. We promise that we're going to stand with Jesus against injustice and fight for the oppressed, and then we forget. Or we get scared. Or we get busy. The church is full of people like Judas and Peter. Our church is full of people like Judas and Peter, and sometimes it's me 
Because behind Christ's prophecy that all of his disciples would fail him is the knowledge that all of his disciples would fail him, even you and even me. I can't tell you how frequently in my work as a pastor I meet with somebody who's struggling with some area of life and they say, I I was nervous to share this with you because I know, like I look around and I I know that I'm the only one. I'm the only one who struggles in my marriage. I'm the only one who struggles with this habit. I'm the only one who can't seem to overcome my anger or my fear or my negative self-talk. I'm the only one who can't forgive. I'm the only one who has doubts or debts, or shame. I'm the only one here who's failed. We believe, subconsciously or not, that God loves the good people, the the people who have it all together, the ones with the perfect faith and the perfect teeth and the perfect hair. And the scariest part about that is that on some level, so many of us believe that in those moments when we know we're not the good people, that God isn't going to love us anymore. But here's the good news for us. The good news is that God loves those of us who struggle with sin and shame and anger. God loves those of us who struggle with addictions and judgmentalism and comparisons and fear. God loves people who betray God and people who deny God and people who fail God. God loves people like us because there is no other kind of people. Jesus predicted that all of his disciples were going to turn away, and then he fed them and washed their feet that night anyway. And then after they did it, after they betrayed and denied and fell away, he went to the cross for them, and he said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. So whatever sin that you are concealing today, whatever truth you're hiding from, whatever fail in your past that you want nobody to know about, Jesus already knows about it. And he loves you in, even in those moments, even enough to go to the cross. Not just when we have things all together, but in our worst failures. Not just when we have things all together, but in our worst failures. And you and I, in our culture, we have a hard time letting that sink in because we have a hard time loving other people when they hurt us. And we have a hard time loving ourselves when we fail. In our culture, we we tend to love in response to what seems lovable. But Christ's love, Christ's love is not dependent on anyone's behavior but his own. Christ's love is not dependent on anyone's behavior but his own. God does not love in response to anything. God loves because God has chosen to love us. That's it. That's it. And that is good news for people like us. So why were these two disciples remembered so differently? What happened to Judas and Peter? They both failed Jesus, and they were both offered forgiveness, but their lives had drastically different outcomes. According to the Gospel of Matthew, Judas thought that there was no hope for him, and instead of turning to God, he punished himself. First, he tried to turn the money back in. He tried to take back the betrayal, undo what he'd done. But when they wouldn't let him, he went out, he, he bought a field, he took a noose, and he took his own life. But Peter's story, Peter's story unfolded differently. Just a few weeks later, he'd be leading the early church as their pastor. He would perform miracles. He would preach Christ crucified, the exact same Christ that he had denied three times that night. So what made them so different? They both failed Jesus, so why is one remembered as the villain and one canonized 
as a saint, there was one major difference. Repentance. Repentance. And I know that repentance is not a word that we get super excited about in our culture, so stick with me for a few minutes. Sometimes when we think of that word repent, we think of those Turner Burn preachers or televangelists who use the word repent as like a ticket out of hell. But Jesus used the word repent very differently from that. In scripture, repentance is a gift. It's a promise. When Jesus said repent, he literally meant transform the way that you think. The Apostle Paul described it like this. Don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way that you think. The Christian life isn't just about resisting sin or not doing bad things. And if we reduce it to that, we will all fail in this life. No, the Christian life starts with learning to think differently so that we're less inclined to want to sin in the first place. It's a change in the habitual thought patterns that cause those behaviors, the insecurity, the doubts, the anxiety, the pride, the family patterns that we learned when we were kids, the fear, the competition, the, the shame, the need to prove ourselves. I remember once when I was first going through this process and I was learning about repentance and I was learning about what, how to see myself as God sees me and I was, I was noticing all the negative thought patterns and bad self-talk that I had in my head and I was struggling with it so much and I turned to my husband and I said, it's like I need a brain transplant. I need someone to take the brain that I have and take it out of my head and give me a totally different brain. And then I realized that's what Jesus is offering us. With repentance, we get a whole new brain. When we repent, we are offered a totally different, free, joy-filled, loving way of thinking and moving and being in the world so that we can be the people that God created us to be. I like how writer C.S. Lewis described it. He said, repentance means unlearning, unlearning, I love that word, it means unlearning all the self-conceit and self-will that we've been training ourselves into for thousands of years. This process isn't easy, and it isn't instant. It usually happens slowly, layer by layer, subtly. It is a process that we engage in our entire life of learning to think as Christ does, but it is a gift. And it means freedom to think about God and the world and ourselves the way that God does. So after all of this talk about repentance throughout the, the Gospels, it's interesting to take a look at how Matthew's Gospel describes Judas's response to his failure. It says this, when Judas, who had betrayed him, realized that Jesus had been condemned to die, he was filled with repentance? No, he was filled with remorse. And remorse is a distinct word. It's a very different word from repentance. And the two concepts are, are very different. Repentance looks forward. It acknowledges wrongdoing, but more than that, wrong thinking, and it asks Christ to change us moving forward. Remorse looks backward. It dwells on the past. It says, whoops, wish I could undo that one. It tries to take back what happened, maybe make amends, but it makes no true change for the future. Judas felt remorse. He realized what he'd done, and he felt really, really bad about it. He wished he could undo it. He tried to take it back. Maybe by dying on a tree, he could make amends. Maybe he could give an eye for an eye or, or pay for his sins himself. But he never allowed Jesus the opportunity to transform his mind. Judas, Judas had missed the good news. He'd missed 
the forgiveness and the freedom from his failure that could be offered to him that same day when Jesus went and died on a tree for him. He missed the freedom that he could have enjoyed if he went to God with his failure instead of trying to fix it all himself. And he punished himself for his sin, like so many of us do. Because if we take our faith seriously enough to take our sin seriously enough, some of us will go through moments when we feel as helpless and as hopeless as Judas did. We might berate ourselves, we might isolate ourselves because we don't think we deserve any better. We might try to pay it back or do enough good so that God will finally forgive us. Or, or maybe we, we numb, we hide, we beat ourselves up, we beat those around us anymore, we feel remorse. But so many of us will do anything we can to keep from turning around and owning the painful parts of our histories and our failures and being transformed in our minds. And I want to say just a quick word about Judas's choice. I don't want to reduce the seriousness of suicidal tendencies to a sermon illustration. If you or someone you know is thinking about suicide, even in just a fleeting way, I want you to know that this is not the way out and there are different, better options for you. There's a, a pastor named Rick Warren out in California who spoke out a few years ago after his son died by suicide. And he shared this message for people who are struggling. He said, suicide is a permanent, irreversible attempt to solve a temporary problem. The truth is most people don't really wanna end their lives. They just wanna end the pain. And there's a big difference between those two. You don't have to die to end your pain. So I'm gonna put a number up on the screen um, th this is on our website as well, on our mental health resource page. We have a mental health resource page now, so I'd encourage you if you haven't gotten a chance to check that out. We have all kinds of mental health and spiritual direction resources for you. Uh, this is the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. So if you are struggling, I want to encourage you to call that number, and they have people who are trained to listen to you, to understand what you're going through, and to help you navigate your way through this. But if calling an anonymous number and talking to someone that you don't know feels daunting to you or scary for you, start with me, start with one of the other church leaders. We'd love to be supportive of you and, and help you get what you need. You are not alone. No matter what you're going through right now, it can get better. You don't have to end your life to end your pain. Because here's the message for all of us, whether we struggle with suicidal ideations or not. Jesus never asked us to wallow in shame. Jesus never asked us to feel really, really bad about ourselves and carry the weight of all the things we've done wrong on our shoulders for the rest of our lives. Jesus doesn't ask you to die for your sin. He already did that. Instead, he offers you a gift, repentance. Trust in Christ's forgiveness of your sins. Trust in Christ's healing of your shame. Christ's redemptive work in your failures. And out of the freedom that we get from that forgiveness, to allow him to transform our minds. That wasn't the path that Judas chose. But it was the path that Peter did. After Jesus was raised from the dead, Jesus goes after Peter personally. And he invites Peter to declare three times that Peter loves him. Three it's the number of times that Peter fell asleep in the garden. It's the number of times that Peter denied Jesus that night. Jesus says, Peter, I know you think you've messed this whole thing up. I know you think that you've blown this up beyond repair, but I once said that you would become the kind of rock I could build my church on, and that is what you are. Now live into that reality 
instead of what you were or what you did. And when Peter repents, Jesus redeems. And one of the most spineless failures of the New Testament becomes the backbone of the early church. It wasn't Peter's amazing giftedness. It wasn't his superhero strength or his perfect saintliness that enabled him to lead God's people so well. It was Peter's experience of failure and forgiveness that enabled him and empowered him to preach so well about failure and forgiveness. You know, we never had another art speak after my leadership fail in 2016. And there was a big part of me that hoped that no one would ever notice, that we would never talk about it anymore, that we could sweep the whole thing under the rug. But I felt convicted, and I wanted to learn from the experience, and I wanted to others to know that I had also learned from the experience. So a few weeks after some very painful and also very healing conversations with the ArtSpeak team in which they graciously said that they would forgive me for the hurt that I had caused, I was at a meeting at church uh, with all of our ministry team leaders, and we were going around sharing the ways that we'd seen God at work in our ministries, like we did every time that we got together. And I decided to share about what had happened with ArtSpeak. I shared that I had hurt people that I cared about, and I was deeply sorry for it. I shared that they had forgiven me, I shared that I wanted to learn from it, to learn how to be a better leader, a better listener, a better collaborator. And it was humbling, and it was painful for me to say those things out loud, especially to a group of people who I wanted to think well of me. But after the meeting, my cell phone rang, and it was our, our former lead pastor, Aaron. And when I picked up, he said, you showed true leadership tonight. You showed leadership because you owned your mistakes, because you apologized for the ways that you'd caused hurt and because you committed yourself to learning how to do things differently. Friends, all of us, you and I, we have failed. And we, we do fail, and we will fail. But in Christ, we have an opportunity. We have the opportunity to name the wrong and be part of the healing in our own lives and in the lives of others and in the world. Because this invitation toward repentance, it's not just to benefit me and my own mind. It's not just about us changing as individuals. It's for the healing of the whole world. Whole societies need to repent too. They can repent too. We need to repent of wrongs that we have inherited in the world. Systems that we have inherited that we benefit from that oppress other people. We need to repent of things that we have done as a society and as a culture and things that we have left undone as a society and as a culture. So what does this look like for us as we take the next step in the Christian life? To repent means getting really, really honest, taking a really honest, clear-headed look at your life, at your heart, at our society, the things that are not of Christ. To say, I judge my neighbor. I'm unkind to myself. I haven't spent my money wisely. I'm not treating my body well. I think racist thoughts sometimes. I benefit from systems that disadvantage other people. I've known about abuse that's happening over there and I haven't done anything about it. It means acknowledging those things to myself and to God and maybe to a trusted friend or your life group to, to part of our community. It means getting together with other people to learn about the injustices in the world that we've inherited and asking hard questions with the Holy Spirit about how we can be part of God's kingdom come. It means receiving God's forgiveness and allowing the Holy Spirit to empower us to live differently. Death comes to us and comes to the world when we respond to our failures like Judas did, 
when we wallow in it, when we live in regret, when we feel really, really bad about it and then try to fix it ourselves. But resurrection happens. Resurrection happens on the other side of the cross, when we pin it to the cross. It happens on the other side of death. It happens on the other side of understanding our failures. And this kind of inner work and outer work, it's hard. And we can't do it without the the strength of the Holy Spirit alive in us. But when we repent, Jesus redeems. And in the place of failure, we are offered resurrection and new life. Let's pray. God, we think to those places in our lives where we have failed. Things in our stories, things in our minds. Places where we have betrayed you or denied you or people that we love. And we offer those things to you that we are still carrying on our own. The things that we have left in a state of remorse. God, this week we ask that you would show us to ourselves. That you would convict us. That in the freedom that we get through the cross and the empty tomb and your forgiveness out of that, that we would not be afraid to enter those hard places. And that by your spirit, you would change our minds. We pray that this would be a a community of safety where we can admit and confess and acknowledge the places in our lives and our hearts that need to change. And that we would encourage each other to experience your grace and your forgiveness and to walk in your truth. We love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.